You're listening to And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here for an author chat with Susie Lo about her debut novel, Paper Names, a story that takes place over three decades in New York City about um, what it means to be American from three different perspectives, including a privileged white lawyer, an immigrant Chinese father, and his daughter. And I mean, if you've been following my Instagram, you should know that I've been in New York for the past week. And it was really a weird experience um, reading this book um, because I felt like it was following me. Like scenes took place in Soho, in Flushing, in Scarsdale, which are all places that I visited during my trip because I have family up in Scarsdale. We did shopping in Soho. And yeah, I really, I really felt like this book was made for my trip. Yeah. Um, as someone who grew up partially in, in the East Coast, I definitely... Uh, a lot of a lot of settings seemed very familiar to me. Yeah. And um, yeah, like we talked to Susie about her background, about being um, 1.75, 1.5 gen in America, um, what it means to be your family's uh, legacy, about losing face, about uh, performative goodness. So we <laughs> pretty much like cover a lot of topics in this in this chat. Yeah. So please enjoy our chat with Susie Lowe. And we are here with Susie Law to talk about her debut novel, Paper Names. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us, Susie. Oh, of course. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And so you used to work as a lawyer and, um, you know, I don't know if you currently still work as an investment banker, but... Uh, it is very far f- on the spectrum from literature and creative writing. Uh, so what drew you to writing? Like, was it something you were always passionate about? Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely took the scenic route to writing. Um, I, you know, for me, I have always been an avid reader when I was younger, but I never really dreamt I could be a writer. And I think what happened with each of the corporate jobs is, they were actually all okay, like okay to great. But after doing each for a couple of years, I just felt the sense that there was more to my life, I guess, uh, or something more I wanted to explore. And I actually didn't know that writing was going to be the answer. Um, I, I remember I tried like some, a few other things, like I was trying to like sketch, draw. I was like, you know, just kind of like uh, experimenting with creativity. And when I hit writing, what happened is I started writing at night and then I just kept going back to it. I think it just kind of blossomed into a passion and then the book kind of organically grew and gained momentum from there. And so when people ask me like, oh, how do they find their passion? Uh, my younger sister, she's a um, software engineer and she's always saying like, do I have a passion? And I'm like, don't put too much pressure on yourself. Just go try different things. Like you might not know you actually like something, especially if it's not something that was really supported in your childhood as like a career. Yeah, and I think growing up, 
you know, there's a lot of pressure to excel at everything that you try. And, you know, as an adult, like you don't have to be perfect at your hobby. You do not have to um, make your hobby into a job. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but you you did like so what was your road to publication like? It's not easy, um, you know, just sending out manuscripts when you didn't have prior, uh, I guess, like an MFA education or uh, just like a lot of experience writing. So how did you go about it? Yeah, I used a handy tool called Google. <laughs> um, I I think part of why, uh, so when I was writing paper names, of course, I I had a dream that one day it could be published, but it wasn't something that I thought for sure would happen. It was just something I felt like I was trying and it was okay to fail. I had actually written a whole nother book before for six months and I had like written it, edited it. And afterwards I just thought like, oh, this isn't right. This isn't the first book I want to um, write. And I don't regret that process because that really taught me how to write 60,000 words and edit it and have a plot, you know, and create different characters. Um, so I always knew this journey would be long. Uh, I actually feel super grateful that it was just my second book that I was able to find an agent. Um, yeah, I just like kind of Google like best agents in New York. I also Googled uh, agents of authors whose careers I really respected and and at this point, I also didn't know a lot of authors. You know, I wasn't like very in the literary world. Um, and like, I was just so lucky to land my dream agent. And I I talked to her all the time um, about like, I can't believe it happened. And we're very frank with it. Also, like, you know, there's only so many manuscripts an agent can read. Um, and I was like, why did you choose mine? And we talk about how at the beginning, it was also just like a little bit of luck. Like that day that I sent the manuscript, she was a little more free, you know, like she had a little more time to read her inbox. Um, and maybe that was a story she was looking for at the time. So I think, you know, for other writers out there, it's not always like how good is your manuscript? It's like a lot of it is a little bit of good luck too. Yeah, the stars definitely aligned for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is really hard in publishing because it, it is a very long and arduous process. Um, but I wanted to ask, before we get into your book, I wanted to ask you about your background. Are you uh, first gen, second gen? I'm like, I call it 1.5. So I was born uh, in China, yes. uh, but I came here when I was three. So I grew up here. Um, I came to Flushing actually first. Oh, so you're just like me. I'm also Generation 1.75. I came here when I was oh. three as well. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it's. I felt like part of why I wanted to write this book was almost to explore that, too. You know, you're kind of just like really in between cultures and um, you're close to your parents, but you're also raised in a completely different way, like inside the home and outside the home. And I think it's so much to grapple with when you decide who you are or what you want to do or what makes you happy? Yeah, whenever people ask, like, where are you? F where are you from? Obviously, it's it's a loaded question. Yeah. Question for us um, as Asian Americans, and um, you know, when we say like New York or LA, they ask like, no, where are you really from? Where were you born? And I feel like with Generation 1.75, 1.5, we can't get away <laughs> from that question because, like, oh, technically, I wasn't born in America, so. Does that make me 
less of an American? Like, I don't know if that's uh, something that you you went through, but uh, it was definitely a question that I went through growing up. I remember in elementary school, we had to do a survey. Like, it was like, you know, what are you? Like, what's your um, background? And I remember my teacher filled it in for me. She just wrote Asian American. And in elementary school, like, I was still obviously figuring out who I was. And my parents were very big on having me assimilate. And I think when I saw that she wrote Asian American, I was like, why didn't she just write American? Like, or like, why did she have to add this other label that I didn't kind of consent to at that time? Um, So I think it was like, that's what made it so confusing. Like, even my parents wanted me to be more American. But I think as I grew up, I actually wanted to be more Asian. I wanted to explore more of my like culture. And that was, I feel like in uh, paper names, that's something Tammy kind of has to go through as well. Like for so long, she's told like, oh, you kind of look half white. That's great. But she's like, but why? Like, why can't I just be Asian? Why can't I just be who I am? Um, So yeah, definitely my childhood experiences uh, seeped into the novel. Yeah. I mean, Personally, I grew up on the West Coast in a very like mm-hmm. Chinese American, Vietnamese American enclave. So I didn't actually get the where are you really from question until I actually moved out to the East Coast in like my first weekend there. I got hit with the where are you oh, really wow. from? Do you remember what you said? Oh, I was, uh, they were trying to be coy, like, oh no, where are your parents from? Like, are you trying to ask me where mm-hmm. I'm really from? And then they like backed off. I was kind of aggressive about it. <laughs> That's good. I wish I were, um, more opinionated when I was younger. <laughs> um, but I mean, speaking of your parents as like a you know 1.5 generation now with like a published book, I mean, what do they think about you and your your creative writing pursuits? It's a very basic so, question we need to ask our Asian American authors. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. Um, so when I left law, at first, I actually didn't have my banking job lined up. I had just been on a conveyor belt. Like I went straight from college to law school to my law firm. And I just wanted or I needed a break. And I felt like the only way I could really reevaluate what I wanted to do with my life was to completely um, like leave my life. So I went to Europe and I like backpacked around. And uh, when I told my parents I was doing that, it was like, really bad. Like, um, they were very, very, very unhappy. Um, like it was hard to talk to them even about it because I think they just couldn't understand what I was trying to do. Uh, I remember my dad said to me like, Oh, why are you complaining about your hours? He's like, if I could make the money you made, I would work 24 seven. And I believe him. Like he would just like never sleep, never do anything. Um, and then when I came back and I, uh, got my job at Goldman, I think they were like, oh my God, thank God. Like she's, you know, she's a rational person again. And then when they found out I was writing at night, they were just like, oh no, (laughs) like not again. Um, they, you know, I never told them what the book was about for the longest time until the week before, uh, I submitted the manuscript to agents and they were asking me all the time. And finally the week before I just thought, it's not like the manuscript's going to change at this point, right? Uh, and it's done. So I told my mom, like, oh, at the core of the novel is a Chinese-American family um, who are immigrants and they're making their way in this new country. And my mom looks at me and she's just like, who's going to want to read that? And that was really hurtful and um, demoralizing to hear. 
But what was so wonderful is just a week later when I signed with my agent, immediately their outlook changed. And I remember my mom even said to me, she was like, I think I want to write a book. <laughs> and I think that's why representation really matters. Like obviously on like a large scale, when we see like Shang-Chi, like the first Asian American superhero or um, all the awards for everything everywhere all at once. Like that's so important on a large scale. But I saw like on a microcosm, like how just me getting to publish my story or even just sign an agent to have the hope of publishing my story totally made my mom think maybe she could have her story out there too. So now I see that when she said to me, who's going to want to read that story? She wasn't actually saying it to me, right? She was saying it to herself. Um, And now they're so supportive. They're just like, uh, they love that I'm kind of my own boss and like um, (laughs) that, you know, I can do what I love for a living because I think it opened up their minds to like what they could do with the rest of their lives too. Yeah. And now they can show off to their friends that they have a, a published author. <laughs> well, you know, child. the funniest thing is like um, my pa- my mom, she's on WeChat a lot with her friends. And uh, she said, oh, oh, the other day when my friends text or whatever, messaged me on WeChat being like, oh, my, my son wants to go into film. And my mom's like, you know what I wrote back? And I was like, oh, no, what'd you write back? She was like, she wrote back, oh, just trust him. Let him fly. And I was just like, wow, mom, like you could have had that attitude like three years ago <laughs> for you're me. Like the, you're like the um, eldest child. You're like their, their, their trial run. Now they know yes. how to parent a creative child. And then exactly. You have to share yeah. that knowledge with other people. Um, so the inciting incident in your novel, um, Tony is a doorman for this very luxurious um, apartment building. And he witnesses one of the residents getting mugged. And he goes out and, you know, he apprehends the mugger despite, you know, not considering his personal safety at the time. And this strangely reminded me of um, an incident that happened during the surge of anti-Asian assaults. Uh, This happened back in 2021 when a doorman in Manhattan actually closed the door on a 65-year-old Asian woman who was uh, badly beaten on the streets And I don't know, like my mind just went there. I was like, oh, what if like this is a what if situation, like um, an alternate version of events? Um, Like, was that something that influenced your writing? Like, what was it like writing during the pandemic? I'm I'm guessing that you wrote this during the pandemic. Yeah, I wrote it uh, the first month of the pandemic. Sorry, writing March 2020. And so I had no idea that incident was going to happen. I remember reading about it almost a year later and it was just horrific to read. I I also lived not too far from where that happened. And I remember, I think that week I even had to like, uh, kind of take off what I like, you know, to kind of decompress from everything that was happening too. And, um, I think what I was trying to write there with Tony, uh, going out without thinking is, I feel like people have misconceptions of others, right? So like when they see someone like Oliver, who's like living in a wealthy building, who's a lawyer, who like is really handsome, they think like, oh, he just also must be brave too and courageous. And he must just be like an upright person and citizen. Um, And, you know, when they see Tony, they're like, oh, he's still struggling with his English. He's like, um, he's just a doorman. Like, uh, what can he kind of bring 
um, to this world today. And it's like when this horrible incident happens, it's Tony who goes out there, who like doesn't think, just like knows this is the right thing to do, just on instinct he knows. And whereas Oliver is like more calculated, he's just like, oh, is this safe for me? He's like almost more... um, it's almost like Tony is, his, is the id and Oliver's the ego. And they're uh, kind of presented with the same situation, but they react so differently. And I think that's what's so interesting to me about their relationship too, right? Like even throughout the story, Tony thinks Oliver's this completely different person than who he really is. And Oliver also thinks Tony isn't as good of a person as he really is. And it's just like our perceptions of each other or um, what a job means or what we look like on the outside. I think... You know, it's just so different from the person inside. So, yeah, your novel follows the story of three three point of view characters, right? Um, you have Tony, um, the father of this Chinese-American immigrant family. Um, Tammy, who is his daughter, who is, um, like you, a 1.5 generation. He, she came to the States when she was very young. And then Oliver, who is this white privileged lawyer um, with like a dark family secret. Um, Can you tell us about how you came up with these three as your point of view characters? So Oliver was surprisingly the first character that came to me. He's actually, I had been dabbling with short stories um, before writing this novel. And I think I was just like working with the character. I had named him Oliver for a long time where he was grappling with what it means to be good or a good person. Like, um, and whether or not he like being good is kind of inherently selfish. Like, does he do good things or volunteer or donate um, or run marathons for charity to be seen as good? Or is it an intrinsic um, like value that it could bring to him and that he knows that this is the right thing to do? And so he's, he's been in a bunch of other short stories. Um, and I think Tony came next because you know, I I actually didn't want to write about Tammy because in some ways I feel like I felt like people would think I'm Tammy and and I'm not Tammy. I'm I'm really all of these characters. Um, but I think with Tony, I felt like safer to write him too because it was like a different person clearly than I was, and so it was easier to imagine Oliver and, and Tony as full characters right away because I knew they wouldn't be mapped back to me. And it was easier to almost let my imagination run free. And actually, the third character is supposed to be Clara, um, the woman who gets attacked at the beginning of the novel. That, so the trio was supposed to be Clara, Tony, and um, Oliver. But when I wrote Tony's chapter and Tammy was there, I just felt like she just kept calling, I guess, to me. And once I got to the fourth chapter, I just wanted to write her. And I was just like kind of trying it out. Um, and once I found her little voice, like, especially as a nine-year-old, it was just so fun to write a spunky nine-year-old, uh, and also like look up what the, uh, trends were in the nineties, like the music and, you know, the Lisa Frank folders, like things like that. It was just, I think it was just so, so fun for me. So she just kind of kept growing, um, inside my mind too. Yeah. I just thought it was a really, it, it was a really interesting choice to have Oliver as the third POV. And I'm really surprised that Clara was supposed to be a POV character because um, this book could have easily been a story told in dual perspectives about an immigrant father and his uh, 1.75, 1.5 uh, generation daughter. I feel like we've seen 
that dynamic in Asian American literature over and over and over again. And of course, like that, like that story can be told over and over and over again because there's mm-hmm. uh, varying degrees uh, of it. Like people uh, are not the same. So um, I just thought I, it's just a comment. I'm not I'm not asking a question, but I thought it was very interesting. <laughs> I think why he kind of got in there in my head was also just seeing how my parents uh, journey in America evolved. Like when they first came here, I felt like they really thought uh, people who looked like Oliver had it all. And they were like, oh, we just want like me to become someone like Oliver, like who's like a lawyer who went to Harvard, things like that. And now that they're older and they they like, you know, I've met more different kinds of people and like they kind of see into their lives. They're just like, oh, they have problems, too. And we thought that this is like the dream we wanted for our daughter. But actually, like, we just want her to be herself now. Like, we don't want her to be like anyone else. I think that's why, to me, Oliver was almost like created uh, for Tony. So, like, Tony could kind of see, like, the life that he thought was so perfect. Actually, like, he already has the perfect life. Yeah, I was going to make that that connection, too, because what the character of Oliver really injects, like, themes of class and privilege and what people with class and privilege will do to keep that class and privilege mm-hmm. and how Tony first sees Oliver as someone who he wishes his daughter can be someday, like a lawyer who holds their head up high as they walk through New York, because at this point he's still just a doorman at this like fancy apartment complex. Right. And then you immediately give us Oliver's point of view and realize his, like his, his entire life is like built on a lot of secrets and a lot of like mm-hmm. bad stuff that their family did to keep that power. And so, I think uh, during that time, I, uh, was looking at a lot of um, Bernie Madoff documentaries because in my <laughs> mind, Oliver is like kind of an imagination of like what his grandchildren might feel like, like or the grandchildren of someone who um, did such wrong to society could feel like. Like, do they feel like they have to like be extra good to make up for um, something that someone in their family did? Like, how do they hold their head up high? How do they operate in the world and what values are they being taught, right? In a lot of ways, like, I feel uh, a lot of empathy for Oliver because it's like he, like, we're always like a product of our upbringing. And there's only like, of course, we can take responsibility for how we make decisions later. But that's also, it's just hard to break out of that. You know, he's always kind of surrounded by this wealth and his family and the wealth becomes a trap for him. And it's like, even though he wants to escape and like he does good things, he's like trying. It's like ultimately, well, the reader will see like, can he or can he not? Um, And that was just interesting for me to explore. Like how much can you escape your family? How much can you escape your parents, your grandparents? Yeah. And you also explore the Asian American history is a history of migration and migration patterns, migration um, waves and Tony and Kim, um, Tammy's parents in your book are part of that immigration from mainland China in like the early nineties when the economy in China in the mainland wasn't as strong. And so a lot of people left to like pursue opportunities and just barely missed the economic boom of like the late nineties, early two thousands in China. And, you know, it's a story that, um, we actually also read in Kelly Yang's front desk, her middle grade novel about the struggles of like this specific immigrant wave and what they had to do and what they had to struggle with as they came here. Um, how did you, I guess, research the the specific struggles of this, you know, wave of Chinese immigration? 
You know, one of the greatest uh, gifts that the book has brought me is I'm so much closer to my parents now. Like, of course, I was uh, I would do research like on Google, read articles from The Times or The New Yorker or, um, you know, whatever other uh, institution that was writing about that time. But when I got stuck on an emotion um, I would call my parents to be like, okay, when it was like 1994 and like you were in this job, it's like you were working at a bakery, but you had a medical degree. What did you feel? And I realized like, I actually never really asked them so many direct questions about their experience and their feelings during that time, because I think it was just such a hard time for us that when it was over, we were just like, oh, thank God. Like, you know, now we like, you know, they own a house now. I remember once we bought that house, it was like their whole demeanor changed. It was almost like, you know, we got citizenship and bought a house and they were just like, oh, we can stay now. We can like relax a little bit. And we never really dived into their feelings on the time. I think in some ways I was always so self-centered on my feelings about the time how like that time made me feel or like um maybe like their flaws in parenting when I didn't realize like actually my parents were like individuals who were going through like some of the most stressful times like I can't even imagine like it wasn't just can I pay my rent it was like can I stay like in this country right like do I have to totally uproot my family again um and my parents were able to, I think, also analyze a lot more of like how they felt during that time and maybe how that scarred them and how that also pushed them forward. Yeah, I mean, um, children of immigrants were often the vessels of our parents' dreams. They sacrifice mm-hmm. everything to give the next generation a better future. But at the same time, we as the children of immigrants, we didn't ask for those sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't choose to be a quote-unquote investment. And you know that is something that is really hard to grapple with. And um, I'm really glad that like writing this book uh, brought you closer to your parents because uh, I feel like you know, first gen and uh, second gen, 1.5 gen, like, we just don't talk about what we went through. And it's, it's very frustrating, because if we talked about it sooner, then maybe a lot of the uh, burdens that we had growing up, it wouldn't have been so hard. I think that's the crux of it, right? It's always, even not just with like parents and children, it's like with friends or with bosses and stuff. It's like, it's always kind of a miscommunication or a lack of communication. And, you know, one thing I found um, when I was talking to my parents about this stuff is at first it was really hard because they didn't have the vocabulary for it. My mom would just be like, oh, I think I felt sad. And I was like, okay, can you tell me more? She's like, what other words are there? Like, and I, we would like, I would kind of give them examples like, oh, maybe you felt this way or maybe you felt that way. And then that would actually help them calibrate how they really felt. And now when we talk about um, things that are happening during our day, we're able to talk about our emotions more because I think they built up the skill because when they were younger, they were not taught to uh, really care about their feelings. You know, it was like kind of just head down, just keep working. Just like if you feel sad, just like channel it to your work. If you feel anxious, just channel it. Um, don't burden others with it. And now that we can so openly talk about things, it's like I even feel like they're lighter people because they realize it's not a burden for them to tell me when they're stressed. Like I want to help them. And when they say it, I think it like leaves them a little bit too. 
yeah, I mean, part of being a child of immigrants is growing up and realizing that your parents are fully 3D people as well, and not just your mm-hmm. parents who tell you what you can and can't do. And sometimes they even forget what they told you you can't do after a while. Um, I did like what you said about language because there's a scene in your book where Tony uses like a, a Chinese colloquialism, like Xingang, which mm-hmm. means heart and liver, which is one of those things that it's just there's no translation really. It's like it's a colloquialism, it's an idiom, it's not something that has a right translation. So, you know, Tammy doesn't understand it, but I think I, it resonated with me because my mom used to call me that too. So I was really, it was really oh, cool to see. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. Um, so like Tony clearly loves his daughter. We've talked about like sacrifices of parents and and whatnot, but you also make it very clear in, in the very first page of your book that he has a temper mm-hmm. and he does physically hit Tammy on occasion when his temper can't be contained. And um, it's a really painful process for a lot of children, children of immigrants to kind of uh, separate like what is love, what is what is tough love and what is just downright abuse and toxic Mm -hmm. behavior. Um, How do you give grace to your parents sacrifice, uh, but also hold them accountable for their toxic behavior? Uh, What are your thoughts on just like that process of reconciliation? Oh, that's such a hard question, but it's a good one. Um, (laughs) I think, you know, I didn't have that exact experience as Tammy did when she was younger. But what was so interesting to me is like, no matter how flawed my parents were towards me, I felt deep down, I always wanted to be closer to them. It was like, Uh, I think that's something children kind of always feel towards their parents for a long time, at least. Um, It's like, it's kind of like no matter what their parents do, like you still want them to love you. You still love them, like for some reason, like you want to understand them. And, you know, with my parents and I, I often have to remind myself we're not just separated by a generation or a couple of generations that every parent and child are separated by, but we're separated by a complete culture, right? And back then, uh, when my parents were in China, it was culturally acceptable to uh, discipline your children in this way. And um, I think then when they came to this culture, it was like clearly not acceptable. So it's like they had to kind of like make adjustments as well. Like I remember even my mom would want to like yell at me in public and then she couldn't. Uh, But she probably would have done it in China and she probably would have been like admired for it. Like they've probably been like, oh, great. That's a good mom, you know? So I think these definitions of like how, like what a good parent is or like how we should discipline our children does vary from culture to culture. Um, And I do think just it's almost like just talking about it is so important and having people acknowledge what they did that was wrong. Uh, you know, in one of the harder conversations I have with my parents, um, we would talk about these things and they they would say to me, like, you always bring up the past. You like just can't let it go. Why can't you just like let it go? And I was like, in that moment, I realized it's because you never said sorry. <laughs> like, I just need you to acknowledge what you did and that you're sorry you did those things and like um, that you won't do it again. And then we can try to, you know, move forward. Uh, so I think like communication and acknowledgement and just kind of working through it, knowing that both of your North Stars are to just be a closer um, unit. 
I don't know. Have, have you thought about that um, in <laughs> I, your life? I mean, like with with me, um, I've actually like like my relationship with my parents have um, it's been it's been rough. Um, there there was a little bit of bad blood, but as I've grown up and uh, became more, I guess, in their words, more difficult. <laughs> uh, more more headstrong uh they always bring up the fact that i my zodiac is a horse and they're like of course a girl who has a horse zodiac would be stubborn and like so not want to listen to their parents but um like i remember i had a conversation with my mother a couple of years ago and um like just told her like i was so unhappy and so stressed by just how much pressure uh she put on me and like you said, it was just all about uh, communication, even though uh, there was a language barrier. I think because I was closer to the age where um, she came to America, like I feel like she could put herself in mm. um, like I feel like I could put herself put myself in her shoes and then she could kind of like look back and be like, oh, right. Like it was it was a hard uh, time for me and it must have been a hard time for my child. And also, you know, every generation they're like, well, I don't want to be like my parents. I mm -hmm. want to learn from my parents' mistakes. Um, and I don't want to grow up to be my parent, but uh, somehow it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> so um, obvious. So like with her, she's like, yeah, like my parents did the same thing to me. And mm -hmm. um so like you said, it's a lot about communication and it, it just like takes so much effort just to get them to the table. And yeah. yeah, yeah. And if it depends on your parents as well, if they love to avoid conflict, it's it's very hard. But um, yeah, it's 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 a lot. And um, also just like the idea of losing face i mm. i feel like with a lot of immigrant parents they you know they want this image to be projected and they have this idea of the american dream which is i think very different from what people who are born and raised here believe the american dream to be um so like i, I do want to ask you that like like do you think the concept of the american dream is is different from like our parents' generation to like our generation now. We are, you know, we were born and raised in it and we might be a little bit more cynical about it. Yeah. I think in some ways I wrote paper names as a challenge to the American dream. Like my parents, and you know, when I was younger, I feel like there was a lot of propaganda about the American dream. Like you came here, you can, you can be the American dream too. Right. And when you really break it down, the American dream is like, it's like a promise that if you work hard, you'll land a very prestigious job and you'll earn a lot of money and then you can buy a house and then buy a car, have like 2.5 kids. And to us, that doesn't sound like a dream, right? It sounds like a checklist. But I think that's what my parents liked about it. They felt like, oh, these are the steps, like they're giving us a template, the steps we have to do to become successful Americans. And it was almost like, we'll be American if we could check off everything. And, you know, even in the book, all three, uh, Tony and Tammy and Oliver, they all check off a lot of the boxes of the American dream. But when they do, they're actually, I feel like, even more unhappy than before. And that's because like a dream can't be one size fits all, right? And in some ways, I actually feel like the American dream is 
a marketing scheme for assimilation. Like, let's all be the same. Let's all live in these houses and have like this nuclear family. And it's only when the characters kind of stop and they're thinking like, no, actually, what do I want? Like, I already have all these things that they said should make me happy, but I'm not. Like, what do what does my dream really look like? That's when they can really try to find happiness and peace in their life. You know, for me, I feel like my parents used to think the American dream was what was um, presented to them by the media. Um, But for me, and I think now them too, I feel like the real dream of America is that it's a place that you can be yourself, right? You can like say what you feel, you can love who you want, you can fight for what you believe in. And I feel like because we live in this country where we have this immense luxury that we can do these things, like we owe it to ourselves to really figure out what can I do with my life? What do I want to actually do and like bring into the world? So I think, I hope um, that's, at least that's my dream now, like um, in writing, just trying to figure out, yeah, what can I give back? Yeah. So your book's been out for a little bit. How has the reception been for you? Like what has, has anything surprised you about the way people have responded to your book? Um, I, I think I'm uh, probably in the minority of writers where I asked my agent and editor not to give me any numbers, <laughs> um, like sales numbers and things like that, because I feel like uh, I'm very far into book two and I kind of just want to like focus on that because in some ways I love to do events and like podcasts, any way I can support my book or connect with readers, I'm happy to do. But I feel like in terms of like reviews or like how many people bought it, um, I just don't think that's really my worth. Like when I was thinking like, do I want to know the sales number? I feel like uh, this, it, let's just pretend the sales number is high, then they'll probably overinflate what I think my worth is. Like if it's low, they'll probably like, um, you know, deflate what I think it is. And it's almost like weight. Like I don't know what that number is really telling me of like my worth. Um, I hope the book is out there resonating with people. And I think maybe given a few more months or like half a year or a year, I do want to know. Uh, but I think to me, it's almost like too sensitive right now to know. Um, and I, and like I said, I don't want that number to define how I feel about it. I think like, I didn't realize, uh, naively how vulnerable it is. Like, um, you know, I, like in my other jobs, like I've, you know, been in meetings, I've like, uh, given like, uh, work product before, like, um, they've like had to file it in certain places. And it was just like, that was just work. And I think for me, writing, of course, it's like, oh, it's work, but it's so much more than that. It's almost like allowing part of your spirit into the world. And you're just like, oh, please be nice. Like, um, but, you know, also like once the book's in the world, it's not mine anymore. Right. Like people can interact with it however they want. And like, um, you know, if they don't like it, if they like it, that's all totally valid to me sometimes. Like, I think it'd be funny if like in a year's time, like I go on Goodreads and I review my book because already I'm like, oh, I could have done this differently. Like, oh, I think like this would have been better. Like, um, and, you know, I don't know. I think it's hard. And some authors are really great with it. They're just so uh, kind of like able to compartmentalize these things. And uh, maybe like as I write more books, I'll get there too. I don't know. Have, have other authors told you like they really like 
knowing their numbers and um, I think it is a it's a common thing where they're like, I don't want to know. And oh, yeah. I, and they say like, don't go on Goodreads. Um, yeah. Sometimes they do like read, uh, you know, very like critical reviews of their, mm-hmm. of their books, but that's mostly for, you know, them as an author to like, know, okay, what can I do to make my prose better? Yes. Uh, but I think everyone is just like, just focus on the writing. Like yeah. you don't go into publishing hoping that you're going to make a lot of money. That's just no. not, how it is unfortunately like we are trying to change that in in the industry i feel like people should get paid more but that is a conversation uh for another time um my last question this is just me as a reader who is uh curious uh where did the, where did the title paper names come from uh so the book was originally named named in america uh and i think that was nixed because they just didn't want um, like international readers to think it was just like an American book, I guess. Uh, so when I was thinking of different names for the book, I knew I wanted the ner- name names in it. And then I just remember like just taking a couple of days to just kind of meditate on that. And I feel like why I was drawn to names is like names are such a big part of our identity, right? Like our first names and last names, like they're just with us through the rest of our lives. And um, I also felt like they were kind of given to us kind of randomly, like we didn't choose our names, right? And uh, yet we use those names and we sign all the important contracts of our lives, right? That's our government name, so that's our paper name. And all three characters in the novel actually change their paper names, like some to assimilate into a different culture, some to hide from their past. And I want to explore what effect changing your name would have on you and also what would make someone maybe turn around and try to reclaim that name. Uh, Some of my friends have been kind of going through that process of like, you know, they had a Chinese name and now they're going by um, an anglicized name, but now they actually want to go back to their original name. It's like, I think that process is like very interesting to me. Like how do you reclaim something that was once yours? Yeah, I mean, like identity is very complicated and really in the end, it's just choosing what part you accept into into mm-hmm. your life. And um, yeah, like the name, like the name Paper Names, it actually reminded me of a children's book by Yang Suk Choi, um, The Name Jar. And it's about a Korean girl who's new in school and her name is too hard to pronounce. So all of her mm-hmm. classmates write suggestions for English names and put it into a name jar and yeah it just like reminded me of that of like oh yeah we we do change our names uh to assimilate better um but but does it really change who we are on the inside and yeah I just thought it was a very uh like meaningful title so I just wanted to know if that was the title that you came up with first or or not yeah, you know, you just reminded me like, well, my first week in America, uh, my my given name is Shinshin. And my mom went around flushing, introducing me to the neighbors. And there was like a very well-intentioned white lady. And my mom was like, oh, this is Shinshin. And like th- the lady couldn't understand. And my mom repeated it a bunch. And then the lady said, oh, you mean Susan. And literally, I became Susan from that day on. And I remember go- when I was transferring to a different high school, I was just like, 
I just want my name to be my own. So that's why I changed it. I just told everyone to call me Susie because I think I just wanted to feel like an iota of control over my identity. And that wasn't just given by this random person who thought my given name sounded like Susan. Yeah, that's how, like, I feel like Shinshin is very easy to pronounce. How did how did they <laughs> get that wrong? But I mean, like, I, I understand my my name is pretty easy to pronounce, but people uh, mess it up all the time. And it's spelled the way it is because our the immigration person spelled it that way. It was not by choice. Oh, really? So. What? It, how is it really spelled? Uh, so my Korean name is uh, Rira. So um, I guess it could be Romanized in multiple ways. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people, uh, some people um, Romanize it like L E L A or L I L A, like Lila, Lila. Mm-hmm. But um, the immigration person was like, "Oh, Rira. Okay, R E E R A." And I'm just like, "Wow, cool." I mean, I prefer that Romanization over anything else. But it's just like, oh, like that wasn't a choice. My parents didn't give me. Uh, mm-hmm give me that spelling it was just yeah it was just given to me um but now i own it so it's fine (laughs) yeah you've made it your own yes yes all right well we're coming up to the end of our our chat thank you so much for chatting with us thank you so much for um writing um a book about i always love reading about especially chinese american experiences outside of my own because i'm I'm a soul cowboy um it was really cool to see um you know you diving into you know the the interiority of both first and second or 1.5 generation immigrants and and their struggles especially living in a place as like fast-paced and hectic as, as new york I guess if you don't mind me asking, um, are you working on anything else right now? Are you? Um, I mean, you what, said you're working on a second book, but mm-hmm. are you allowed to tell us about <laughs> that second book? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the second book is also from three different point of views. Um, but the cent- the central spine kind of connecting all three is uh, a young couple uh, and their relationship and it's their relationships kind of told through the point of views of the young man's father and the young woman's mom and sister. And these three point of view characters all go through their own journeys. Um, but something I was thinking when I was deciding to write this book is like for so long, I was told like, if you're the right couple, nothing will break you, right? Like nothing can happen where like, uh, will affect your relationship. But I actually think what's going on in the lives of the people closest to us really does affect us. Um, And I think that's just something I wanted to explore. Well, Susie, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Bulba and best of luck on your future endeavors and congratulations on your debut novel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Susie Law, the author of Paper Names, available now at booksellers everywhere, uh, including the Books and Boba online bookshop. As always, when you buy a book from our online bookstore, you not only support the Books and Boba podcast, but also your local bookstores as well. Books and Boba is also supported by our Patreon members. Um, if you want to join and engage with us even further, um, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash booksandboba. Books and Boba Patreon members gain access to our exclusive members-only Discord server where you can interact with fellow club members in real time. And subscribers at the Honey Boba level will also get access to our Boba Chats, which is our new monthly special uh, bonus episode uh, of the podcast. 
And before we go, one last reminder that our July 2023 book club pick is The Imaginary Lives of James Ponicky, a novel by Tina Macaretti about a Maori boy who wants to see the world and agrees to travel to Victorian England to be part of a living exhibit. Um, we're really excited to um, check out this book that explores um, not only Pacifica culture, but also of colonization and cultural theft. So we hope you read along with us. Um, if you've already finished the book uh, and have some thoughts to share, please let us know on our Goodreads forums or our Discord server. Um, as always, we love to include the feedback from our members in our podcast whenever possible. And with that, thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you again to Susie Luo for joining us on this episode. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Rayu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Life gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.